Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Maddalena Marinari is Assistant Professor in History, Gender, Women and Sexuality Studies, and Peace Studies at Gustavus Adolphus College. She has published extensively on immigration restriction and immigrant mobilization. Today we will be discussing her book, Unwanted, Italian and Jewish Mobilization, Against Restrictive Immigration Laws, 1882-1965. Professor Marinari, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Could you give us a brief overview of the immigration laws discussed in your work and tell us in what ways, and this is a quote from your book, U.S. immigration law has always been simultaneously open and closed since its federal articulations in the late 19th century. Of course. Thank you. So my book begins in 1882 because there are two laws that are passed in that year. One is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was actually quite effective at curtailing Chinese immigration. And the other one is the Immigration Act of 1882, which was the first law that was trying to target Southern and Eastern Europeans. What's interesting, though, that while the Chinese Exclusion Act was effective, the one targeting Europeans was completely ineffective. And in fact, immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe kept going up. And so my question was, why is it that although the uh, anti-immigrant feeling against both Asian and Eastern and Southern European immigrants emerged at the same time, it took a lot longer to actually target European immigrants. And what I came to find out is that many legislators and a lot of Americans were actually fairly uncomfortable targeting ex- European immigrants for restriction explicitly. In fact, it took World War One for legislators to, ma- to pass the most restrictive immigration law against European immigrants. And so the 1917 Immigration Act theory was supposed to end all sorts of immigration from Southern Eastern Europe, particularly targeting Italians and Eastern European Jews. And the law included a literacy test that was supposed to essentially reduce immigration from this part of the world to a trickle. Well, first of all, so on one hand, it was a restrictive law, but the law also exempted quite a few categories, and so it immediately undermined itself. But I think another way in which we see that these laws were simultaneously restrictive and inclusive is the way that the law in 1917, for example, identified stowaways, most of whom were undocumented Europeans, as a problem. But it also had a provision that actually allowed them to be admitted anyway, even though they had not gone through proper channels, at the discretion of the Secretary of Labor. And so, not surprising, within two or three years, legislators were back trying to come up with a new law because they found that the 1917 Act had essentially failed. Even the perhaps one of the law that's the most restrictive in the U.S. 
Immigration History, the 1924 Immigration Act, was in fact not entirely restricted. So on one hand, the act then uh, imposed a near ban on uh, immigration from Asia, and it introduced a national origin quota system that was specifically targeting immigration from Southern Eastern Europe. So in theory, this should have put an end to immigration from really anyone. And at first, it worked. But I suggest that the act was effective, especially because it went into effect as the Great Depression was happening. And so at the beginning, you do see immigration from Southern Eastern Europe go down at the beginning of the 1930s. But because the law exempted from the quota system family members, Italian and Jewish activists essentially realized the family reunion was a way to get around the um, restrictions, essentially. And so if you start looking at the number, you actually see that the uh, number of immigrants coming in start inching back up towards the end of the 1930s, and they start dramatically going up after World War II. And that's in part because of another law that's usually perceived as restrictive, but that, in fact, it had a completely different impact on what the sponsor had intended. And I'm talking about the 1952 Immigration Nationality Act, which was also known as the McCarran-Walter Act. So McCarran was a committed, avowed anti-communist and anti-Semite, and he used his power in the Senate and seniority essentially to ram through this law that on one hand it said, yes, the country needs the national origin system, so we affirmed it, but it also introduced a preference system that essentially said the United States only will favor family reunion and immigrants with skills. And really, if you look at his paper, he's very explicit about saying, this is probably the only way that we can keep the racial status quo in effect that we have right now. Well, what happened in reality is very different because although a lot of the scholars say that this change began in 1965, it actually starts with the 1952 laws where we start seeing that the flow of immigration flows start changing away from Europe and towards Asia. And so you have a lot of skilled immigrants from Asia who arrive and who are then turn around and are able to use the family union provisions to reunite with their families. And, and so even though 1952 was celebrated as the confirmation of the United States is actually committed to immigration restriction in practice, the numbers steadily go up and the majority of immigrants who come in the 1950s actually come outside of the quota system. And then the last law, perhaps it's the famous one, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. So usually this law was presented as something that was exclusively trying to redress a wrong by eliminating the discriminatory national origin quota system and that it would not affect U.S. society at all. So, and what it did essentially is introduce a global quota system saying that each country is getting the same number, the same slot, essentially saying this is the only way that we can guarantee equality. It's a very superficial idea of equality. In reality, what happened is that legislators, again, had underestimated where immigrants were coming from. And by the 1960s, yes, a lot of Eastern and Southern Europeans brought the few family members that had left, for example, but much of the new immigration was actually coming from Asia and Africa. And so this law contributed to truly diversifying U.S. society, which is definitely not what they had intended. So there's kind of a, a positive there. But on the other hand, 
and this is because restriction in one of their way. The law also imposed the quota system on immigration from the Western Hemisphere for, for the first time, which meant that now immigrants like people from Mexico and Latin America have been able to cross the border freely now are bound by these yearly numbers. And so that, in part, caused one of the major issues today, right, which is undocumented immigration. So what I add to this literature is I was actually interested in understanding why the gap between the original bill that the Kennedy and Johnson administration had and what ended up becoming law. So the original bill, which this activist had really pushed for, called for an immigration system that was a lot more flexible and that essentially it adjusted these numbers depending on what the United States needed. So it was never part of the bill, say, the fact that every country should have the same slot because it was not realistic. Essentially, you have Italy and China with like 20,000 slots every year and you can see immediately why that could be a problem. And so essentially... What the restrictionist in Congress did was use the rhetoric that the Johnson administration and this immigration reform activists were using of, of equality. And say the, so they were saying this is a discriminatory law. We need to uh, consider these people uh, and their rights and adjust what we need depending on economic needs or refugee crisis. And this restrictionist said, sure. If you want equality, then it means that everyone is getting the same number of quotas. And so by doing that, essentially, they neutralize any counter-argument. And so that is kind of part of the story that I want to tell, where that tension comes from. What differences were there between Italian-American and Jewish-Americans' approaches to advancing changes in American immigration laws? Where did they find common ground? Yes, thank you for that question. So I think the biggest difference is in the type of organizations that they organize. So I should say that a lot of the people at the heart of my book are middle-class Italian-Americans and Jewish-Americans who really want to kind of change the law, but, but because they're worried on how these laws are affecting their role in American society. And sometimes what they do is actually in conflict with what their communities want them to do. The communities tend to be much more aggressive. A lot of the groups are actually fairly moderate. But so one of the things that both groups decide is that they understand that they have to organize themselves into lobbying organizations. But essentially, Jewish immigration reform activists understand early on that fighting for immigration reform is such a daunting and big path that they need to create organizations like the American Jewish community that specifically work on legislation. And then they have other organizations that work on resettlement or adjustments in, in the United States. Italians never did that. They, all, they only had a couple of organizations that tried to do everything, and that made them very ineffective. The very first organization that Italian-Americans created specifically to lobby legislators, doesn't start until 1952. And it was only because the Catholic Church put pressure on them to do it. It's like, everyone is doing why are you guys not doing this? And so, because of this different approach, oftentimes, it's at least in the through 
the 1940s Italian were much less effective than these reform advocates. The other major difference is how they frame their push for immigration reform. So from the very beginning, in part because of some of the stereotypes that they lobbied at them, Jewish activists decide that they should frame their fight in broader terms. In other words, they over and over they say this is not just for Jewish immigrants, this is this Revisions, these changes would benefit all immigrants. Immigration is a right. In reality, that was not always the case. That's actually the ones that were favored, but the rhetoric was always much broader. And that's in part because well into the 1950s, in and out of Congress, the immigration problem was usually referred to as the Jewish problem. So they're very sensitive to this rhetoric. Italians, on the other hand, because they had fewer resources and much less political influence, they're very pragmatic. They're very explicit about saying we only get involved if a law or a bill directly affects Italian immigrants and Italian immigration. And they don't participate in coalitions, they're very pragmatic in that too, unless they would get any benefits out of it. And the last major difference is what I just mentioned is how they approach coalitions. So you have Jewish immigration reform advocates that start pushing for broad coalitions across political, religious, and ethnic lines from the very beginning, from the end of the 19th century. Italians don't do that until really the 1950s. They do some of it in the 1920s, but then they kind of retrench and focus exclusively on Italians. But even once they join coalitions, they're always very pragmatic about which issue to join. Which brings me to what brought them together. I think the biggest issue is definitely family reunion. Both groups realized that family reunion was the main strategy that they had that they could deploy to undermine the national origins quota system and immigration restrictions in, in general. They also came together for broader goals in the 1950s because a series of revisions during World War II, like uh, the repeal of the Chinese exclusion, the Fiancé Act, the World Rights Act, somehow convinced them that uh, reform was imminent at the beginning of the 1950s. They had underestimated McCarran. And so they pushed for things like reallocating unused quotas to help immigrants from oversubscribed countries. They fought for a system that didn't penalize unskilled immigrants in favor of skilled immigrants. They also asked for more immigrant rights for either detained immigrants or immigrants who were denied entry at the port of entry. Much of that even though they found common ground, didn't lead anywhere. What's interesting, though, is they actually did not come together around the idea of fighting for the elimination of the national origin quota system until the early 1960s. What's even more interesting is that between 1924 and 1965, critics continually tell them, what's an alternative system that you envision? And they really struggle, and I think that speaks to how much they had internalized the fact that restriction was really inevitable and that they had to operate within the existing system. So except for a very small group, neither Italian or Jewish activists ever said, let's eliminate restriction uh, completely. They always said, usually their argument was, what we have works already, let's not make it even harsher. Could you tell us some of the strategies Italian and Jewish immigrant communities used to mobilize against 
immigration laws that marked them as undesirable? Yes, thank you for that question. So what's interesting about these strategies is how how little they've changed compared to what we see today. So by far, the most consistent strategy and the one that they went back to over and over again was to launch education campaigns. So they really believe that if only Americans understood and learned about the terrible impact the racist immigration laws had on separated families and on the individual looking for new beginnings, and if Americans understood how important immigration is to U.S. society, that they would immediately embrace immigration reform. It was just a matter of educating everyone. And so you see, at one point in the 60s, it's like an educa- a new education campaign every year. But we just need to rally people and they'll understand. And so they sponsor books, articles, they go on speaking tours, they give interviews, they have newsletters circulating. And that hasn't changed much, right? Today we have a similar approach. And I think it's what they thought is the best way to counter out these negative arguments that are coming at them and being optimistic about the power of education. Another major strategy is creating strategic coalitions. In other words, they are both very careful in understanding about which issues they should come together and launch this, for example, this nationwide letter writing campaigns. But again, because the systemist politicians were really skillful at, sep- at dividing these coalitions, this type of strategies didn't always work. Which leads me to another strategy, which is once the 1924 Immigration Act goes into effect, Italian and Jewish advocates and a lot of other immigration reform advocates realize that it's, it, it will be or at least acknowledge that it will be really difficult to completely get rid of immigration restriction. And so they decide that the best approach is to through piecemeal reform. So rather than calling for entire change or an overall immigration system, they start saying, well, what about family reunion? Or uh, what about other exemptions for, for example, children? And, and on one hand, right, that seems to make sense because they want to undermine the larger immigration policy one piece at a time. And as someone famously said in the 1950s, one of them said, some progress is better than no progress over the status quo. But because of this approach, I think the immigration system became much more convoluted and also much more uneven and unequal in its impact because this Reforms that the smaller reforms that they fought for really only benefited some groups over others, and they overwhelmingly benefited groups that actually had a voice at the table. After World War II, another dynamic that emerges is that they they finally get the executive branch on their side again, which had been the case in the 19th century and early 20th century, but then most presidents had actually been in favor of immigration restrictions. So starting with FDR, presidents take a closer look to uh, immigration reform, not because they think that they want more open immigration, but because they, they believe that negative, restrictive immigration policy are actually affecting U.S. foreign relations. So it's it's not altruistic at all. But at least the support from the executive branch then allowed for much larger reforms like the one in 1965. And then another strategy which really did not work, but it, I, I, I found interesting, at times, especially in the early 1930s and the late 1960s, when 
both groups believe that immigration reform was just not possible given the anti-immigrant environment. Both groups actually look for alternative destinations for these aspiring migrants. They, most of the negotiations happened in Latin American countries. So many of these plans failed because of lack of resources, but also uh, job opportunities. The most interesting one, and then I'll land my answer, is I think Italian lobbyists allied with members of the Catholic Church traveling to the Dominican Republic in the 1950s to work with dictator Rafael Trujillo to say, can you please admit more Italians? And he essentially, at first he said yes, over two years, it's like, but then he became more and more demanding about the type of immigrants that he wanted. Because on one hand, he liked that white immigrants could whiten the Dominican Republic, but he didn't like that these people would be unskilled. Like a lot of countries around the United States who ended up uh, incorporating a lot of U.S. immigration policies, he too was looking for skilled immigrants. And skilled immigrants would have rather gone to the United States, of course. So, so it failed completely, but I, I thought it was fascinating that they were even eager to negotiate with a dictator as a possible alternative to immigration restriction in the United States. How does your work demonstrate law as an instrument for social engineering? <laughs> so I think there is a rich literature that really shows the many ways in which immigration laws passed between 1882 and 1965 were really almost eugenic tools to shape U.S. society and maintain the existing social and racial status quo. So I focused on like three different ways in which this, this was happening. So the emphasis that both Italian and Jewish immigration reform advocates put on skills and family reunion, while it did allow for more immigrants to enter the country, it was accepted by legislatures because essentially it was a way for them to guarantee the existing racial and social status quo, right? So because the assumption was essentially that white immigrants would be sending for the white relatives when it came to family. And at first, both groups really believed that U.S. immigration law should not privilege skilled workers because the majority of people from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe were unskilled. But this is something that they quickly abandoned because legislature was just not receptive to it. And this change essentially coincides with the fact that more and more in the 30s and 40s and 50s, more and more of these unskilled immigrants were immigrants of color. So by abandoning that, actually, they ended up penalizing immigrants of color who were unskilled. The third way, and I think this is the one that has received least attention, is how these laws were also designed to give an unspoken preference to Protestant immigrants. So even though restrictionists are attacked Italians and Eastern European Jews because of their culture, their political ideas, their heritage, their like their skills, it's clear that the fact that they are Catholic and Jews are particular. It, it's something that they want to target, but they, they can't because of something called religious freedom in this country. And so they skillfully find other ways to reduce, especially Jewish immigrants after World War II as the, as the discussion with uh, Displaced Persons Act, 
which were pushed by prominent Jewish organizations. While well, these acts, while well, they passed, they actually ended up benefiting overwhelmingly Protestant first immigrants, then Catholic, and then Jewish immigrants. And even during the 1930s, technically, Germany had a very large quota. And so Jewish immigrants applying to come to the United States in the 1930s would have been easily able to enter, and yet the German quota went unfulfilled for the entire decade. And there's evidence that shows that, and some talk of some secret memos, although they've never been found, that if you were Jewish, you were actually denied a quota to come into the United States. And so this, I think the intersection of religion and immigration restriction needs to be explored much further. In what ways did strategies for reforming immigration law align with American foreign policy considerations? So the intersection of immigration policy in U.S. foreign policy doesn't really begin until World War II. Up until then, the United States are, you know, avowed restrictionist and isolationist. And in fact, the ties that both Italians and Jews have with the outside world are a liability. But World War II, all of that changes, in part because these racist immigration policies could damage the U.S. alliances, particularly in Asia and Europe. It could tarnish the image of uh, that the U.S. was trying to project abroad and also undermine its case for global influence. And so, essentially, as I mentioned, especially uh, the executive branch understands that immigration restriction is something that the United States wants, but it just can't be as explicitly racist or discriminatory as it is. And so you see, for example, a series of changes during World War II, but you can tell that it, many of them are kind of token changes. So, for example, with the repeal of Chinese exclusion in 1943, yes, Chinese exclusion is repealed, but China only gets 105 slots a year. And it's by ancestry, not by nationality. So if you're a Chinese in Britain, you're still counting against the quota of China, right? So this is this was started as a, as a major accomplishment, but you can tell that in reality there is this tension between advancing U.S. foreign policy abroad but still trying to maintain the racial status quo at home. And the same is true, for example, for, as I just mentioned, the Displaced Persons Act. Right? On, on the United States could argue, see, we've accepted refugees, we're, we're helping people who were persecuted during World War II, but in reality, uh, Jewish refugees benefited from these acts in much smaller numbers than Protestant and Catholic refugees. And so, but what matters for both groups is that starting in World War II, there is an additional argument that they can make for why the United States needs to reform immigration policy. And so you have, essentially, the arguments become much more powerful, especially as they intersect with the civil rights rhetoric. However, I want to mention, sometimes these arguments actually don't work. But in 1952, they again said the national origins quota system penalizes some of our closest allies. Truman, when he vetoed the McCarran-Walter Act, said as much. But McCarran essentially persuaded his allies in Congress and his supporters outside of Congress that precisely because of the transnational ties that this group had, 
this actually put the United States at risk, and immigrants were sort of a, a fifth column. So this re- the embracing of this of foreign policy priorities actually could cut both ways. So at times when they aligned, it allowed them to push for small immigration changes, but at times it actually they proved kind of productive. How did the actors in your work's reform efforts help create certain hierarchies in immigration law and policy? So throughout the entire book, but especially in the 1920s, in the 1950s, it's clear that the anti-immigrant hysteria and the structure of the U.S. political system really convinced these activists that if they want to sit at the table, they have to accept the inevitability of immigration restrictions. So, I mean, these are people who are moderate to begin with, so they never really thought about pushing uh, a very ambitious agenda, but they really felt like their options were limited. And so this mentality kind of became a problem because it made them more prone to compromises, like, as I mentioned, abandoning their fight for unskilled immigrants. Or, like in 1965, embracing a more superficial notion of equality by imposing the same quotas on all countries. And they're also, in part, right, responsible for broadening who counted as a family, right, and who could come in as a skilled immigrant. So in theory, a lot of these things, yes, they did allow more immigrants to come in, but in practice, the impact of a lot of this provision was very uneven. Time and again, I see that, I in my book, see that these provisions are applied very unevenly in reality, depending on the resources that these immigrants have and the organizations behind them. And... The, literally the voice, someone is speaking for them to make a case. And I think that the biggest way in which they replicated certain hierarchies was really accepting the fact that immigration could only be changed through piecemeal reform. And you can see that legislators are very much aware of that. And so in 1952, McFarren promises some small change to each individual group. And that's including groups of Asian descent, European descent, and everyone gets something that's big enough to rally around and say with make some progress, but not big enough to actually radically change existing policy and challenge racial hierarchies that are in place in U.S. society. And, that, and that's in part because I think it was so hard to make change and they're almost always excluded from the final stages of reform that any change in the status quo is better than no change. And I think I, as I, as I mentioned before, perhaps the, the biggest way in which they contributed to replicating some of these hierarchies is really the superficial embrace of the civil rights rhetoric in the 1960s. I mean, in part, they felt that the elimination of the quota system was long overdue because they felt that they had finally been fully embraced as members of American society. But by prioritizing that change, they really undermined a whole other set of system, ended up by accepting the imposition of quotas on the Western Hemisphere, which ended up overwhelmingly affecting unskilled immigrants of color. How does your work help us grapple with the long history that helped produce contemporary restrictive immigration laws? 
I've been thinking a lot about this these days, as you probably imagine. I think the biggest issue is that immigration restriction has been normalized. Right? We every every conversation, even today, that starts about immigration reform inevitably says we need to have some sort of harsh regulation because we can accept everyone. But I'm not. This was not inevitable. I think there's a set of circumstances at the beginning of the 20th century that pushed a lot of people to accept this as what countries do, right? But I, I think the other the other thing that I find problematic and then my book gets at is that, well, people say that the system is broken. That's actually not entirely true because the system, in a way, it's actually working because the system was designed was designed to exclude immigrants. And that is the product of a shift in mentality. So not just a commitment to immigration restriction, but a shift from seeing immigrants as future citizens and productive members of society to immigrants are a problem. They're a threat. They can undermine our economy or our political institutions or radically change our culture. So I think even more than the laws themselves, it is the mentality behind them. I think it's, for example, really significant that where immigration is would be located in the government, right now is in the Department of Homeland Security, it used to be Department of Congress, Department of Labor. And I think as you follow these changes, you also follow the changes about how Americans look at immigration. So today is a threat, right? But I also find that the biggest problem that comes up over and over again in my book is the impact of what it means to ignore, marginalize, or exclude the voices of immigrant communities during legislative debates. So I find that these immigrant groups are really good at keeping immigration as part of a debate in American society, but they're almost always excluded from the actual drafting of the policies. And I think that contributes to the dehumanization, the stripping of rights, of more and more rights, the closer you get to the 21st century, the immigrants have. And ironically, I think, the other way is that this eagerness to close every loophole, which I follow in my book, creates a cumbersome, complicated, and even more restrictive than it's meant to be system. Right, because a lot of these provisions are actually really hard to enforce, but they also have made it. They make it, if you look at every decade, they make it increasingly difficult to actually remain interlegally and remain legal once you are in the country. All right. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.